Before we jump into the app, quick reminder that nothing on Bell Curve is financial advice. Everything is just a meme. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. You got Mike's one and two and Vance. Fellas, welcome back to the show. Glad to be back. I apologize for the rugging uh, of the internet last week. Um, it's also criminal. I can't believe I haven't done a show with Yano since his <laughs> wedding. Got lots of know, good stories. And, and, <laughs> and I got no I got no reactions. Like, I, and you you and I met in person for the first time a week and a half ago. I know, man. We had a blast. You know, we had a very was, nice dinner. I thought we had a nice panel, but my favorite part was, was the dinner. I'm going to be dinner. real. Wow. It was lovely. Yeah, we got some Very good nice. bonding time. Yeah, we talked about some sci-fi books. Uh, it was good. So wait, speaking of, good. what was yeah. the show that you that we were talking about? Oh, yes, Counterpart. Yeah, Counterpart. It's dude. It is worth a watch. J.K. Simmons is magnificent. It's like it. It might be better than his uh, Whiplash. That's a bold claim. Like it's extremely good. Ooh, yeah, ooh. I don't it's know a spicy about that. Take. That's that's like top five. That's a, yeah, it's a spicy take. I, okay, watch. just just watch the first episode. Watch the first episode, and you'll see what I mean. Like it's a it's a tour de force for J.K. Simmons. I think. Um, wow. You know, who's, you know who's not having right. a tour de force week is Kanye West. <laughs> Kanye West. So the first forty five minutes of the show is gonna be Kanye West and how he's. <laughs> On his way to no longer being allowed in America, basically. But uh, tough week. Tough week for the yay. Yeah, um, I mean, the only thing to say about that is it, it, it's pretty clear that, you know, something's going on and that, you know, probably should just step off the airwaves. I think so, too. Yeah. That's the very humane response. Yeah, it's definitely like – it is tough. It is – I mean, he has such an enormous megaphone and I don't want to diagnose from – you know, I don't know what I don't know. But, yeah, definitely someone should probably – Yank away the, the Instagram, yeah. the Twitter uh, for a little while. I think so. A digital um, retreat would be would, would right. be probably put the toys what's away. ordered. Yeah, well advised. Yeah, well advised. Go try yourself out somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right, guys, we're back. I got some charts. We're actually going to start with uh, some non-crypto stuff here. Uh, but I actually just wanted to get your take overall on. So I've got up here. Let me know when you guys can see. Got a couple of different. Um, Assets here. I've got Meta and Snap because those were uh, some of the big Web two companies that just had earnings. And I've got ETH and Bitcoin over it. So you know, I saw this chart from uh, Mika Honkasolo. I'm gonna butcher his last name, but it was like year to date performance for you know Meta and Snap versus ETH and Bitcoin. And I mean, this is actually from one year ago. So this is from like the Pico top basically of both those assets, and they're still outperforming. Uh, you know, much larger, well established Web two companies. Um, we're going to talk about uh, meta earnings in a little bit, but do you guys, what's your guys' take on this? Is uh, this is the last five days? There's been a nice, healthy bounce here for ETH uh, and Bitcoin to a lesser extent. Obviously, pretty and Snap's done okay. Meta, absolutely brutal. Like, what do you guys think about just the bounce in in crypto this last week? I have more commentary around uh, Snap and Meta than I do commentary around the bounce in crypto. I mean, I think frankly, like the bounce in crypto is just an uh, in, in overdue. Uh, adjustment of the understanding of the the valuation of these assets. Um, frankly, the the meta stuff and the snap stuff. Just going back to that uh, over the last year, and, and we'll talk about this um, probably later when we talk about NFTs and Apple. Um, what has happened, and and I think this is not a, a fundamentally nuanced take, but having spent a couple of years at Snap, um, ATT ad tracking transparency 
is driving the business model of direct response advertising into the ground. Basically, Apple has gotten rid of the identifier for advertisers, the IDFA, replaced it with uh, this thing called the, the SCAD network, um, which is essentially an audience network um, advertising element, um, but that doesn't have the ability to basically say, I want to target these people and let me know when these people have purchased something. And that was the basis of basically all of the ad, app install ads for both Snap and Facebook uh, or Meta. And, and that fundamentally has gone away. Uh, and this happened probably about a year ago. So not, not surprising that we've seen uh, you know, the, the business models adjust. Um, but I think that this isn't something that's going to change. Like this is, this is gonna be here for a while and, and Apple's not gonna relent. They're not gonna go back on what they've done already. Uh, so you have to reinvent your business model. Meta is trying to do that, but doing that at an exceeding, exceedingly exorbitant cost. Yeah, uh, just to like double click on why that's so important, like attribution, if anyone out there is listening is involved in like an ad sales type business model, attribution is like a key, key driver for how you're gonna succeed in a sale because the first thing that if you ask someone to spend a million dollars in advertising with you, they're gonna say, okay, how can I determine what my ROI is? Facebook arguably had the most advanced attribution mechanism known to man, well, basically. And what they would do- And let's be, be clear too, there, there is brand advertising, which is basically putting up billboards all over the internet. YouTube, YouTube is classic yeah. in doing this. They also have direct response, which is a call to action based advertising unit. And if you're not actioning, if there's no way to, to verify whether or not that action is happening, you can't verify to your point whether or not the advertisement actually works and the targeting actually works, which is the basis of those businesses. Exactly. And there is, there's brand, there's brand advertising, then there's direct response. The thing is, uh, the Google and Facebook oligopoly, why those platforms are so seductive is there's this really easy kind of login sign in and they make it very clear to say you spend X amount of dollars and you get X amount out, right? They make it very clear and easy to understand what the ROI is. So just to be clear, right? In, in theory, there's been no difference for how effective Facebook's advertisements are, but they can't as clearly say, right, with as much certainty in their attribution models, okay, you spent $1 and you're getting $2 out. But the ads are still getting served to the same amount of people. They just can't prove it as effectively and it makes it less monetizable. I, I actually, that's, a, that's an interesting question. The, the ads are still running, the ads are still flying, but what is changing mm -hmm. is the audience or the lookalike customization where you say, okay, I'm adjusting my ad. It's, it's not like someone just like puts on a unique custom audience and they say, okay, just run it for the next 12 months. It, it's constantly being refined, constantly being adjusted. And, and now you yeah. don't have the ability to have that refinement. And, and so the, the repurchases of these ad units are just not happening. And, and sure, you can brand advertise yeah. everywhere. And you can basically say, I wanna target you know, males in the US age 20, 18 to 24, but you're not going to be able to refine that further after the fact. And, that, and that's really where they make the money, or, you, or at least used to. Right. Well, the other thing that happens there, too, is because they can't trace as many purchases to the ad dollars that are spent, it looks like your CPA is going up, basically. So what you do is, like, you go to an advertising agency. They are the ones who typically, like, hey, this is what we should do. We're going to spend on basically just Google and Facebook. Uh, and then there's attribution that's done on those platforms. And if Facebook can't do attribution as well because they're blocking the pixel on Facebook when you go to Safari on your phone, then Facebook, instead of being able to say, oh, look, you spent $1 and got two, it's going to be like, oh, you spent $1 and got $1.15. And so suddenly you as the advertiser is going to be like, whoa, why, am I, why is my CPA going up so much? I'm going to spend less money. That's the – and so 
that uh that's like the big headwind that's that's happened a while ago but then they really it was a really tough earnings call for them so their stock is down something like 22 percent on the day we're recording this on thursday the 27th um there was a whole bu- there's a whole bunch of stuff uh basically that's been happening so basically their revenue is down four percent um you know in the last quarter uh it was a revenue miss and an earnings miss uh the the other the other two reasons why they're getting dinged here is because their costs are continuing to grow right so you know ad budgets are kind of one of the first things they're super discretionary so companies you know kind of tend to reel those in when they're macroeconomic headwinds which there definitely are uh and i think what analysts expected were for facebook to reel those costs in they've kept headcount flat so that's at least relatively good but their costs are continuing to expand to between 96 and 101 billion dollars uh, in particular, Reality Labs, which is their metaverse sort of unit, had a had a forty nine percent drop in revenue to two hundred eighty five million. That's an operating loss of three point seven billion on the quarter, uh, and they expect, they expect a, a ten billion dollar dent, you know, to operating profit in twenty twenty three. And uh, Zuckerberg himself has said, yeah, that's probably going to go higher. So basically, investors are like, dude, <laughs> you have you have got to fix this. Uh, Am I, am I missing something from that take? It, it doesn't look great, I suppose. I mean, the, what you're missing is that these platforms are growing. Like Instagram today has a billion two users. They're supposed to get to 1.45 by the end of 2025. Like adding a few hundred million users, like that's a lot of economics. The growth rate isn't that good, but like DAUs, MAUs are generally up. You know, engagement with the app is generally up. I think the thing that really matters is like, they're just getting squeezed by Apple. Like that, that's kind of really what's going down here. Like if, if things were status quo as of last year, probably a lot different conversation. But now that this has changed, like the underlying economics of the business and all of the assumptions that it was built on are kind of valid. Snap is a single platform app. You know, it's only existing on mobile devices. Facebook at least has the ability to have web. So Apple isn't as relevant to Facebook, which is why you're seeing the delayed effect and, and sort of the, the slow unwinding of the Facebook business model from an ATT direct response advertising perspective. Whereas this time last year, I remember Vance and I were sitting in a conference room and, you know, that was the day that Snap dropped 33% after earnings, you know, lost a third of its valuation in a day. Um, the the other thing that I'd add just to the meta conversation in particular, um, meta yesterday reported earnings. The, the stock actually traded up for a short period of time until Zuck got on the call and started asking, answering questions about what was going to happen. And what also happened this week is Brad Gerstner from Alterbiter Capital wrote an open letter saying, you mm. need to rein in costs. Saw you that. need to rein in expenses. This whole meta thing, metaverse, like that is, that is a, a red herring. You need to run away from it. And basically what happened on the call is he basically said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not listening to you. Um, and I'm not listening to anybody yeah. either because I have super majority shareholding and I can vote however I want to. Uh, so I, I really think this is more a, a reaction to just the indiscretion for shareholders that Zuck is showcasing. Um, but it is, you know, obviously all of the other stuff as headwinds to, you know, this already big growing problem of Meta. Yeah, I think you that was ex- the, the only thing I would add is that if you look at the chart of, of uh, Meta, so it peaked at like a trillion, 1.1 trillion, basically, and it's gone down 70% since. Um, Ethan and Meta's market cap are becoming pretty similar. 
Like, ETH has a pretty decent shot at flipping, you know, in the near future. I think that's when things start to get really interesting is when you're like, you're forced to mentally put, you know, one company, Ethereum, and another company in a sandwich when you think about their valuation. It's like, well, it has more cash flow than this one. It's more deflationary than that one. Like, you can start to make a real argument for these things as, you know, the next generation of tech stock assets. And I think forcing that valuation framework will be very useful to people, even if it's just on a market cap basis. Like ETH is already trading basically as much volume as Bitcoin at this point. The market is really changing a lot, which feels you know pretty good and different than the summer. Yeah, 100%. I think you already started to see that narrative. Um, you know, you kind of started to hear this a little bit last year during the bull market. But uh, if Bitcoin was digital gold, then ETH was kind of like the FANG-like bet. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do think that's a powerful narrative, right? Because FANG... You know, as a sector or, or a little subunit of the Nasdaq has basically been the best performer the last decade, you know, by a mile. So it's a powerful narrative. I agree. It's it's, it's yeah. growth. Yeah, and like the thing, the thing that it has is no overhead. You know, basically no cost other than those borne by stakers and the cost to actually you know stake your asset. It's kind of like the opposite of everything that you see with Meta, where it's like. How do we get these costs down? How much money do we actually need to spend? Is centralization actually like a bad thing, or should you like compete on a more you know resource level, um, like Ethereum? I think those are going to be really interesting questions. But you know, at some level, like if it gets back to all time highs in terms of fees, you know, ETH is going to look from an economic standpoint very similar to these large tech companies. The reasons why decentralization is important. You know, you've got literally the you know, one of the largest, most prevalent uh, products on the face of the earth run by someone who has 21 shareholding power uh, and and maintains yeah. control. Um, and, you know, it seems like the direction is whatever he says the direction is. Whereas, you know, you're talking about an open source protocol that doesn't have anyone who controls it. Like, th this is fundamentally the power yeah. of decentralization. Yeah. There's a, um, I think that is kind of the, the nail on the head of just, uh, like, shareholder rights, basically. And nobody cares about you know, founder control, right? When everything's going well, but as soon as it turns around, everyone's like, whoa, uh, I'm not exactly. so sure about this. Um, there's, there's, there's almost like an interesting, you know, glass doors moment where, you know, Steve Jobs obviously was the visionary, specifically the product visionary behind Apple. Uh, and then, you know, RIP, Steve Jobs passed away and passed it on to Tim Cook. Tim Cook, probably not a product visionary, but that guy was, he was an operator, right? And he was definitely more friendly to shareholders. He instituted buybacks. That's like company lifecycle type stuff. So, you know, maybe you will see. And honestly, Snap has the same problem here, right? Evan even Spiegel, worse. And he's the even worse. You know, you know how yeah. many votes a, a class yeah. A shareholder has in Snap? Zero. I do not. It's the first really? stock to ever trade on the uh, the on the New York Stock Exchange without any shareholder voting. How how okay, you got so, away with that is uh, beyond me. So so what is a like at a, at a high level what is an equity if you have no claim on cash flow or voting rights i mean why does it have any value Snap, at all snaps down 90 percent the oh. <laughs> yeah i guess that, the, the yeah. theory the theory of like software investing is that you should have a product that's you know able to be digitally replicated it's low cost to distribute you can give it to people for free you know and at a certain scale you can just stop your costs but if it grows linearly, like then you have like a really big problem. And if you can't downsize quick enough, then you have like a big hole in your balance sheet. And so I think that's going to be the really interesting thing to see 
is like, do these tech companies issue more stock? Do they issue more debt? Like that was a core part of at least the, the Netflix playbook in like the 2016, 17, 18 time where zero interest rates were prevalent. So it's going to be interesting to see kind of what they do, but I'd expect to see a lot of the small mid cap ones get pretty yeah. seriously hurt. I think uh, this is just a theory of mine. I don't know what you guys, I haven't heard anyone talk about this, but I wonder if uh, antitrust has anything to do with this because typically the way that Facebook dealt with innovation in the past was they would just buy it, right? That's what they did with Instagram. That's what they did with WhatsApp. And they had to pay a higher and higher price, but like who cares, right? I mean, they were growing like mad. Now they can't do that because, uh, you know, Department of Justice signaled like, hey, we don't like this anymore. So there has to be something else. There has to be another story. There has to be another I mean, that, that playbook has been run through and, and it's gone, at least for the foreseeable future. Maybe, you know, a, a new direction, yeah. a new perspective, a new administration, that narrative changes. But at least as it stands right now, yeah. there is no ability to acquire growth. Yeah, 100%. Um, I got one last uh, take for you that I heard from this guy, Mitch Lasky. I don't know if you know him from the gaming world. A board member at Snap. There you go. All right. He had a, he had a take on, I was listening to an interview he did uh, where he got asked about Reality Labs at Meta. And he was like, basically, there have been three pushes for VR in the past. And they've all coincided with big, uh, big sci-fi novels, which was Neuromancer, Snow Crash, and Ready Player One. And he's basically like, none of those really worked. And I've I've noticed there probably maybe there will be someday like a VR kind of world uh, where we're all interacting with our avatars and and whatnot. I've always personally thought the way metaverse is talked about in crypto has more to do with like base layer property rights, where you can build something in a digital realm, and that ownership is verified outside of one monolithic institution. But it has been like such a powerful meme that has just captured people's imaginations around. I guess my question to you guys, like, are we eventually, like, when Zuck talks about his <laughs> his vision for the metaverse, like, do we head towards that or or not? I mean, because it is seductive and I kind of get it, but I kind of agree with Mitch's take too. Maybe. Like, v- I don't think VR and AR has as much to do with it. Like, I think kind of it's like the metaverse is like technologically ambivalent. I think it's like more native to the internet as a concept. But I think what the metaverse is about is like, how do you log on to your computer and make money? Like you can't do that on Twitter. You can't do that on Instagram. Can't do that on any of these platforms. What if I play a game? What if I LP in some, you know, DEXs? What if I like, you know, stake my ETH? Like, can I make enough of like a financial life for myself, like native to the internet? And that to me at least feels like the metaverse. Like when you, when you send an Ethereum transaction, when you sign something, when you interact with a contract, like that feels like magic. It feels like you're like touching something different. And I think that's more, at least native to my own understanding of the metaverse than like, you know, strapping on an Oculus. Like that, I think we're already, that's I just mean, like not the, as much for me. There is a way to do that now, which is influencers and content creators. And, and that's native to the internet. Well, percent, but that's precisely, suck. that's sucks. exactly my point, <laughs> which is that's the only viable option right now. Whereas if you, uh, it, you know, in, instead of trying to amass uh, a million Instagram followers to be able to sell your, your Instagram posts, like there now are new ways of interacting on the internet and, and doing jobs and getting paid. Like that's a fundamentally different thing. And, and I, I do think, frankly, one of the things that I'm waiting for personally is like, what will Apple do here? 
And I know it sounds cliche, but like they have invented these product categories multiple times over and you would expect, you know, they're supposedly working on something they have been for the last four years. It's supposed to come out in the next one to two years. Like we'll, we'll see what that ultimately ends up becoming. And AR kit, I think is, you know, that they've released over the last two or three years is a move in the direction to build the software base to be able to coincide with some piece of hardware. Um, but it's not going to be an Oculus. It's not going to be, I actually don't think it's going to be virtual reality. I think it's going to be augmented or mixed reality um, to Mitch's point. But that, like, we haven't seen the hardware platform created yet that just blows this whole thing away. Right now, what we have with the Oculus is the equivalent to the Palm Pilot. I, I agree with you on that. I think it's just too ambitious, basically. Um, I'm not smart enough tech-wise to be like, is it actually ever going to work or is it not? But I don't know. Um, maybe just... I also don't, I don't think you can intentionally create a metaverse. I don't think that's something that you can do. Like if you set out and say like, I'm going to go build this place for everyone to hang out online. Generally those like don't yeah. really work as concepts, but like if you build like, you know, an association around an asset like ETH or like, you know, being like a patron of the arts, like, you know, in NFTs or like actually using your collateral with, with DeFi, like that's how you create what I think is a metaverse. I don't think it, uh, games are just like an onboarding funnel. I don't think VR has anything to do with it. <laughs> but I it's think not going to. Stop yeah. spending that money. Um, <laughs> no, no, man. I I agree. Um, but I guess we'll I guess we'll have to see it. I will say, uh, if I could just offer one thing. I mean, that guy. There are these stories about him, right? When like Yahoo tried to acquire Facebook when they were worth four billion dollars, his entire board is begging him, you know, to you know go forward with the acquisition. It's like, nope. And then there was the pivot to mobile, right, in whatever it was, like 2007 or nine, And it was like, don't bring me anything unless it's mobile. So, but I guess the, you can only do that so many times. You live long enough as the hero to end up becoming the villain. Become the I, I mean, the, the, other, exactly. the other take here is like, what did Cheryl know? <laughs> you know what? She, she was out. Yeah. Didn't matter. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she, she leaned out. How long was she there? 14 years? <laughs> some, some absurd. Uh, no, a long like, time. Long yeah, a long time, yeah. Uh, I probably get this pretty easily. I mean, she was probably there like, what, 2007, 2008? Yeah, yeah. 14, Four, 14 years. 14 years. In late 2007, yeah. Um, good run, Cheryl. Honestly, way to get out at the top. Same with Jeff Bezos. No one's really given him this credit. Like, well, he was out and stepped back in. Really... No, Is he back? No, he, he's no. left. What's his, but, um... you know, he came back as CEO no. until Jassy took over. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Um, all right. Uh, I, w- I want to get your guys' take on. So there was, uh, there was an announcement, not a great one, from uh, Core Mining. Uh, but it's kind of signaled some let's say tightness uh, or stress in the mining sector in general. Um, but maybe we can talk about Core a little bit because they're the largest, I'm pretty sure, public miner. Core Scientific is one of the largest Bitcoin miners in the world, uh, run, warned that it may run out of cash by the end of the year, and it could seek relief through bankruptcy protection. So basically they cited operation performance and liquidity has been severely impacted by the prolonged drop in the price of Bitcoin and a rise in electricity costs. And Competition and litigation with bankrupt Celsius Network, and uh, and yeah, so they basically submitted this with the the Security and Exchange Commission. Uh, shares, of course, Scientific has pl- plunged as much as seventy seven percent, which is the largest decline since going public uh, with the merger. 
basically they've tried a whole bunch of different ways to raise capital. So they've done a couple of debt offerings, but they also uh, enter, they also have tried to raise capital through equity. Uh, so they entered into a hundred million dollar common stock purchase agreement with B Riley Principal Capital Partners in July. Um, but you know, and then I guess the last thing that I'll say is they warned that they won't be able to make payments that are coming due in late early uh, in late. Uh, October and early November with respect to several equipment and other financings. So at the time of recording this, it is October 27th. So we are definitively in uh, late October. So basically, they're defaulting on their debts. Um, Listen, what do you guys? So two, two thoughts. First of all, open the, the thing I just sent you, the BitcoinTreasuries.net. Yeah. I don't know if you've yeah. ever seen this. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. It's basically all the public mining companies and, and how much Bitcoin nice. they have on their balance sheet. So, you know, you, you obviously have if you uh, throw it up there, you have MicroStrategy is, is the mm. is the number one company. Core Scientific only has 1,400 uh, Bitcoin. 24 left. as of now. Uh, I don't, this is another. They had 1,000 as of a month ago. They now have 24 Bitcoin on their balance sheet as of today. So I think like the order of operations if, if you're a mining company and I, i've never run one so this is like more of a guess but um you sell your bitcoin because that's your your you know fungible asset if you get into trouble and then you have loans against your mining rigs and i i think like if you think about the hierarchy of like risky stuff to do with crypto lending there's like unsecured there's like you know full collateralization but there's also like i'm gonna you know have the ability to repo your rigs if you default on this um, and so I think that's kind of like where things stand with them. I know that a lot of other companies also have similar issues like Zach Vol, who is a good, uh, follow on Twitter for just like Bitcoin mining, you know, insight. He said repeatedly, like how dire things are for basically everyone, except for the absolute best managed and best run companies. This is like, this is also kind of similar to what happened in, uh, in 2018, with the miner, like, you know, we had the crash in like January or February that year. Um, things were stabilized around, you know, 6K, hung in there for like six months and then broke downwards to 3K. Right when the miners kind of like gave up the ghost in a similar style scenario, but less liquidity. They had probably more Bitcoin. Um, but this is like, you know, standard operating procedure for a bear market. Like you kind of always have these minor white bets. The way I think about it is it's kind of like you're starting a startup and you like choose the hard path by doing something like hardware versus software. And like time and time again, you know, hardware startups get funded in, in bull markets. Not many of them survive multiple market cycles. Like proof of proof of work is, is tough. It's work like this. I think emphasizes just the fact of, you know, proof of stake being at a, at a core advantage to proof of work consensus where, you know, you get to make it across life cycles, to make it across market cycles, you really have to have a gross margin profile that, enables you to have the flexibility and fungibility to, to do things that are dangerous and, and you know, scalable. Um, whereas, you know, electricity in, in a time of high energy costs is going to be costly. Michael, how many new proof of work pitches have you heard in the past year? I don't think I've heard one in the past two to three years. It's been a long time. It's just like, you know, I wouldn't say Bitcoin mining is a thriving industry. I say, I think it kind of looked really similar to real estate to a lot of people where it's like this income generating property, but you know, real estate doesn't take into account that when the price drops and your costs stay the same, you know, you might be forced to liquidate. And, so it's uh, just to, just to clarify, like why this is a particularly stressful situation for miners. So 
we're looking at here is Bitcoin price and hash rate. And typically those two things are pretty correlated. So we're looking like at, and like I, I personally think, I know a lot of people debate about this. I feel like uh, price leads and then hash rate follows, right? Because hash rate's kind of a combined measure of the, you know, the mining power that's being dedicated towards securing the network. So when the price goes up, people chase just like every other commodity driven industry. But if you look at what's basically been happening since May, there's been an inversion. And as the price has fallen, the hash rate has gone up. And that's particularly difficult because when typically what happens is when the price goes down, the hash rate goes down, and then there's a difficulty adjustment, which makes it more profitable for existing miners. But one of the big changes in this particular cycle is that there was an enormous amount of credit that was being given to miners. So many miners are staying online that otherwise, if they didn't have access to these credit facilities, they would have gone offline and the mining rigs would have passed into stronger hands. So the result is that you know, it's never been less profitable to mine Bitcoin than it is today. And at the same time, the other component that they're indexed to as a business, which is the price of electricity, has been skyrocketing. So that's basically what hap- what's happened right now. I think if you want to go one layer past mining, it's like you've already started to see stress at the at the firms that were extending credit here. Uh, to those like, you know, I don't want to name any... I mean, I don't want to name any names, but like there are a couple big <laughs> lenders, right, that have pretty publicly been in trouble and laid off a whole bunch of their staff. And uh, now they're in a tricky situation because they loaned against the ASICs and most of these ASICs are outdated. So like that's just a painful thing that's going to have to get worked through. I, I don't really know what's going to happen. One, one of the lessons from 2022, no leverage. No leverage. No leverage. No yeah. leverage. Don't do it. So I think I think you can ask the question very validly of like, was the whole, you know, not just interest rate complex, but also like cheap energy complex, something that like structurally encouraged proof of work businesses. And now that those economics are way different, the structure of that market will be way different as well. Like you'll have more concentration, like because you'll have, you know, economies of scale. Like, I think that's also a meaningful headwind on the decentralization of Bitcoin is just the price of energy. You know, the lower it is, the more, you know, far and wide that you can spread it. I mean, if anyone's interested, my, my understanding is that there are multiple different business models in these miners. It's not like they all do exactly the same thing. Uh, there are some that are like completely 100% vertically integrated. So they own the kind of the space, right? They own the actual rigs themselves and they make profit by mining and then eventually selling the Bitcoins for a profit. And then there are, there's kind of like cloud mining as a business model, which is you own the facility and you basically facilitate the purchase and storage of mining units that are mining rigs that are owned by different individuals. And the reason why that's coming under fire as a business model is because when it becomes unprofitable to mine, those individual people turn their mining, their miners off. But guess what? You still own the facility. So you have these like huge uh, fixed costs that you're locked into. It's a duration mismatch. Right. So you have long term, you know, fixed liabilities and your assets suck. So that usually what happens when when this imbalance plays out is that like those companies go out of business. And that's what I meant by the mining rigs passing from weak to strong hands. And that's like not happening because of these credit facilities this time. So I think it is going to be ugly when it gets worked out. It's definitely the, the one model that I have seen that seems to be at least at this point directionally correct, potentially. You know, if you think about what you have at the end of the day, assuming that your your profitability goes down, but you're still profitable, and that your assets are probably not redeemable, or, or um, you're not able to actually recoup any of the value, if you've got mining rigs that go out of out of style or, or out of capability in like one to two years, the one model that I have heard of that makes sense is you know you're buying up large swaths of property, so like the physical space to be able to do this. You know, you're talking like warehouses in Texas. 
and you're using you're you're putting your capital into the assets themselves, the money rates themselves, and then you're borrowing and levering up on the real estate so that you're paying back the real estate, and then that is something that's a recoupable asset, whereas the money rate is go to zero. Have you guys ever watched the founder, the McDonald's Ray Kroc story? It's a oh yeah, it's a real yeah, estate it's a real company. estate company. Not a that was an awesome scene. So, me. Yep. Also, while while we've been talking, uh, Amazon just announced earnings and is now down twenty one percent in the past four minutes. Dude, so so much for so much for oh, pain. Oh, brutal. I mean, it's the type of market this is. Is like you know you announce earnings kind of one by one, and like the good ones are, are kind of left alone, but the bad ones are just like yeah. absolutely shot. These are like taking a twenty one percent L for. I think this yeah. is still a trillion dollar company. <laughs> yeah, I think so. 1.13, no longer. Not I mean, after barely. Um, you know what? If I could actually like. Oh wait, no, this yeah. is no longer. Yeah, that no was 1. post one three pre close. Right. Um, yeah. Meta now trains uh, trades at a like sub ten price to earnings, something like that. It's like eight in change or something like that. Uh, you want to guess what Amazon's is? Like a zero. 99.8. 99.8. 99. Really? Oh, right. They, they started, started actually generating they, profit. Yeah, yeah, okay. They started actually generating yeah. profit, right? Yeah. Uh, wow. I mean, like, it's it's yeah. like pretty bimodal, right? The good ones are like huge PE ratios. The bad ones yeah. are like basically zeros. I kind of wonder what happens to like the snaps of the world, like the small, like the Robin Hoods of the world. This is Robin Hood stock since it's ipo actually i've got a slightly it's worse one blue apron oh that actually is the worst no go to go to blue go apron. To ah maybe it's a little better because it at least made well they had the echo bubble at least yeah. robin hood was yeah. like like i mean uh, yeah so that that's, that's the, the full one um one of the takes yeah. here that i think is actually pretty interesting is i actually you know we're talking about uh amazon who obviously is a commerce business Sleeping underneath that is AWS as well, but also a massive advertising business. And um, we're talking about the obliteration of the advertising-based business model. You know who's the winner in all of this? It's Apple. Yeah, 100%. You know, they, they have created their own advertising product. It also, it hasn't scaled yet. It hasn't shown up in the earnings yet, but they've created their own ad product. It's gonna be live, discovery for apps. You know, they're gonna own app install ads essentially. Um, and they have the keys to the kingdom. And, you know, part of the, one of the things that we want to talk about today is, you know, they also came out and said, IAP is forever and we're going to maintain our 30%. And if you don't want to sell it, if you want to sell NFTs, you're going through us. Yeah. What? Okay. I be actually, I want to get, I want to get, yeah, let's just move on to Apple. Uh, but just, I want to get your thoughts when we end on the ETH BTC ratio and just uh, flows uh, between those two things. But uh, let's talk about Apple announced that they were going to be uh, enabling NFTs, uh, basically NFTs in apps that were on their app store. Right. But it's subject to the same, you know, restrictions and rules that basically in-app purchases are like every other in-app purchases, which is it's a 30 percent take rate. And, you know, the caveat to that that they're very quick to point out, right, is that it's only 15 percent if the developer is making under, you know, under a million dollars or so per year. 
I, you know, where there's a lot of discussion about royalties, right, on NFT marketplaces, and we should probably talk about that as well. There were some changes made to Magic Eden over on Solana. But, I mean, the royalties that, that they're talking about are far, far lower than 15, let alone, I mean, 30%. So, on the one hand, oh, and by the way, I should say this isn't just Apple. I'm pretty sure this applies to yep. Android uh, as well. It, so Google Play Store, not Android. You can still sideload apps uh, via Android. Cool. Um, so, I think that's the, I mean, my question to you guys is, you know, in, in some senses, this looks like a Web2 giant. I mean, it's the largest company in the world acknowledging nfts uh on the other hand i guess my question to you is do you see this how do you see this benefiting or or not benefiting the ecosystem i mean my take and advance may have a different perspective my take is this is and i don't know why this is like lost um, amongst the, the audience right now um this is probably one of the most bullish things to happen to crypto like in the last five years because there's a hundred billion dollars of revenue that's not just like activity or engagement people spend a hundred billion dollars a year just in games via iap imagine if you were to say okay let's take this massive market that we think of which is nfts right now all the different drops all the secondary marketplace transactions and we'll get into the differentiation here because i think there's a nuanced take but if you were to say okay we're going to have a hundred billion dollars of available business that you are now, instead of selling virtual consumable goods in your game that go away the second that you stop playing that game, now you actually ascribe that to something that is recoupable as an NFT that's mintable on-chain outside of the app, and you can do things with it outside of the app. Like that, that is a, a fundamentally massive step change in, in this industry. The, the tough parts are, IAP is probably one of the most janky products ever. You have restrictive pricing on the different SKUs. If you want to change pricing, you have to literally do an update to your app, which you know takes weeks to review, it takes days for everybody to download, but you have to sell you know, 99 cents, 199, 9.99, et cetera, et cetera. You can't change that pricing. The other thing that's gonna be really interesting is you also can't change quantity. So there's no scarce aspect to the mints that you'd be performing. And I don't know how we reconcile that. That'll just be something that we have to figure out. Maybe the industry gets big enough or there's some middleware that can step in to do that, uh, fix that. But, you know, frankly, like this is one of the most bullish things ever. The 15, 30%, whatever. The fact that Apple is enabling this, developers who want to integrate NFTs are going to make far more than they would have without IAP. So uh, I just want to point out there are, there are a couple more um you know, restrictions and uh, Michael advance, maybe you guys think this is a big deal or, or maybe it's not, but apps cannot have external links or buttons that take customers away from the app store to facilitate purchases. So for instance, like OpenSea auctions, right? This would decidedly not be good for their business. All related transactions have to be denominated in USD, not digital assets, which I actually feel like is not insignificant, at least for the core crypto users now who probably denominate a lot of their NFTs in, in ETH, uh, which is certainly less painful in a... <laughs> bear market is a better way to do it um i mean I, i'd be curious if you think either of those two things uh if that changes your mind michael those are things that are just gonna have to get litigated basically i mean th so the point about non-linking uh apple already lost a court case with epic games saying that it cannot link uh that that is actually not i, I don't know how apple is putting this in writing right now because that runs completely in the in the face of the court ruling that happened so i i would kind of like negate that point because i, I don't think they'll actually be able to enforce that the point of not having the ability to so here here's how i think it's going to work 
you're going to have an application where let's say 90% of the people don't even know that they're interacting with NFTs. They're just playing a game. They're playing, you know, the app, they're using the app, whatever. 10% of the people will actually care about the NFT and primary sales only will happen in the app store, in the app itself. If you want to pull that NFT off platform and bring it into OpenSea, bring it into some other ecosystem, sell it, you know, borrow against it, whatever, whatever you want to do with that NFT, that's going to happen in the mobile web or the desktop web. It's not going to happen in app. So like the secondary marketplace, not going to be possible. What could get really interesting. So what Apple says is you can only make purchases with IAP if you're paying fiat, if you're paying dollars. What they also say is that if you are a permitted exchange, you can transact in, in virtual currencies in, in cryptocurrencies. What might be interesting here is if you have a custodial wallet experience, let's say like Coinbase, if you were to then go and say, I loaded it up with ETH, which I can purchase in app right now, and then I use ETH to make all of these purchases in the secondary marketplace, that, that actually may get around IAP. Um, but all of this is like TBD. You know, there are zero apps that actually integrate NFTs right now in the way that we're talking about using IAP. So we're just gonna have to see what happens. Yep. Also, I would say just taking the worst case scenario of, of them basically banning us off the table, like that's so positive because before there's formal guidelines and the guidelines work on a, like they make them and then they iterate basis. Like if they come out super negative, there's basically no room to maneuver. But now that there's like a, a relatively positive framework, it feels like an olive branch and, and the industry can actually work yeah. with them. Well, they weren't, I mean, Apple wasn't the only one, uh, you know, that there was also like Reddit news um, this past week. So Reddit, I mean, this this also kind of got uh, slept on as news, but basically uh, back in July, Reddit announced that um, an 86,000 NFT avatar collection, it's not NFTs, it's digital <laughs> collectibles, uh, you know, uh, and they, they announced that they were gonna have their own uh, NFT trading marketplace so basically, you could you could mint these things on. Uh, I think their back their back end was on Polygon, uh, which is how it worked. Uh, and last week, Reddit revealed that they onboarded over three million wallets, um, and they minted over eighty six thousand NFTs since uh, since July. I mean, now I think the what's been pointed out is a lot of these people probably didn't don't fully understand what a di they're calling it a digital collectible. It's not on like OpenSea or anything like that, so the experience feels much more less crypto native. But I kind of am like. Who cares? I mean, that, that, but that might, who cares about that? I don't even understand why that's important, actually. So that's a lot. That's a big, you know, three million. It's non-trivial. I don't know what you guys think about that. This is going to be a feeling that happens a lot over the next two years. Crypto Twitter is not going to be the first circle that's in the know of something that's happening with normies. And it's going to kind of get semi-derided as like the Reddit NFTs kind of were. Um, but I think that is like such a good sign that the thesis that we have, which is like games and NFTs and, and whatever else, like it's, it's not happening, but it's starting to play out. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, anything that onboards people, it's super positive. Reddit messing around on Polygon is great. I think the question is, how do you convert the people that have come in, you know, the normies that now have NFTs? into people that are using DeFi and doing other stuff on chain and, you know, downloading MetaMask, like, so like onboarding and then kind of like bringing them into the inner sanctum of like crypto Twitter and crypto culture and everything writ large. That's kind of like the secret sauce that we now need to figure out. And I mean, frankly, it could be fake, but it does feel like it's the, it's the narrative or it's the sentiment right now is it was a post uh, of someone's DM 
that they got sent, uh, which was, you know, in the in the Twitter byline of this person who sent the DM was basically like, I don't believe in NFTs, they're all a scam. And then the message was, hey, I just downloaded the Reddit NFT, like how do I know how, how do I check to see how much it's worth? Like the 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 point is I, I think ultimately it's gonna be the same thing that frankly got most of DeFi in, I think, which is like speculation broods excitement and, and attention. And and I think you're you're ultimately gonna see that be like the the initial like the the tip of the iceberg, and then it's gonna be like a snowball rolling downhill where you're just like okay now I got DeFi now I got MetaMask now I got well what else can I do like that that's the journey that I think a lot of us went down, um, and and yeah. I think it's just gonna happen the same way. Yeah, you know it's funny just because like we're in media we get asked a lot, um, and my perspective has kind of changed about this over the years like. How do you onboard people? And if you ask people, what they'll say is, it all sounds so technical. It's just so you know foreign, and I don't want to understand it. But I, I don't. So I used to think that was the barrier, and it was like, oh, if we could just talk and be. I just don't believe that's true. And I think the best way for people to get, like become enthusiastic and get involved is like someone gives you some Bitcoin or ETH, and it goes up, and you're like. Suddenly, this makes this feels a lot less scammy. I, I don't know that, that, <laughs> part, that part, like doesn't feel so scammy that anymore. Product's really tough to use. Okay, here's a hundred bucks. Now is it tough? <laughs> oh, now it's five hundred bucks. Hmm, maybe there's something here. Maybe. Actually, yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't look at it before. It's just funny. How how do we get them in? Games, NFTs, loyalty points. You know, blocking, attacking yeah. BD for the most part. I would call that. How do we get them to stay here? I think it's it's kind of like the technology moments that I remember from my life are like getting on Facebook, you know, like using Instagram, at least like the early years in college. Um, but basically after that, after college, the only transformative technology experience that I've had is like using Ethereum, like sending a transaction, like having it hit instantly, like being able to do different stuff, like the feel of like the hardware wallet that like, I really do think it's about abstraction, but it's also about say, like, you gotta I, put them I, on chain. I've, if they're actually gonna stay. condition part of what I was saying. I, I think speculation is literally the tip of the iceberg. Like that's just enough of like an activation energy to get people to do yeah. something. But I think the second that you actually start to understand what decentralized technology in the face of meta, in the face of snap, you know, writ large could provide, I, I think that's where you actually get people to stay. There's a talk that a guy named Josh Rosenthal uh, gives uh, that I find extremely compelling as a very high level way of thinking about this. He gave it a permissionless. He he's done it on Empire and Bankless and a couple of other podcasts. But you know the analogy that he uses is if you were like a feudal serf, right? And uh, you know you're living on land that's owned by someone else. You do work that is you know the fruits of your labor goes towards someone else. Uh, and someone from this time tried to go back and say, hey man, you're, you how do you deal with this? Like you're not free. He'd be like, what do you mean I'm not free? Like you, you have such little understanding and now we also like everything that you produce in an online setting is not owned by you, right? Just as an example, if anyone wants to, I tried to recently um, like uh, pull some old like photos and whatnot off Facebook because I was just like, should probably do that and just try to see how hard it is to do that. Just watch how hard it is to just limit the views of your own old like Facebook uploads, you know, from I'm from like middle school. You know, I was just like, this can't be on the internet, man. Uh, but yeah, you just own so little and you see so little of the comparison. What photos website, you got? I think. No, no photos. <laughs> you don't need, to, don't need to check. No need to check, brother. No worries. Um, yeah, nothing that's going to get me canceled, but I definitely don't need everyone uh, digging around, you know, at Facebook. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Exactly. We'd hate yeah, to exactly. deplatform you. I know one platform that'll still partake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I got some. I got some pull on one platform still. Um, Everyone yeah, like, hey, Josh, is a, Josh is a um, very smart no, person, and I, I love that speech that he gives. Um, it's so true. It's a too. great analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got a, just on the theme of speculation, I have a, um, I'm trying to think about this because, you know, Aptos and Sui are launching um, and I have no, I have no particular opinion. I've actually heard from some pretty smart people that I respect a lot that there's something there from a tech perspective. I can't diligence that. I will make the observation that extremely high valuation L1s launch at the end of bull markets basically never work. And I would posit that the reason why that is, is because the distribution mechanism in crypto is you start at a low valuation, you a bunch of retail people buy in, they become very wealthy, and then they scream about your uh, product for like everyone to hear. And like it's a, it's a very viral kind of distribution mechanism. And that's why I think you've seen less. I know you got, I'm not, I don't mean this against like VCs in general, but like less super VC heavy chains as opposed to like more retail organic driven like funded chains from the beginning maybe outperform a little bit better. I'd be curious what you guys think about that. They also have this, you know, the first bear market after your like parabolic blow off top as a base layer in terms of the asset, like that's when you have all the VCs unlocking. So, you know, there's like, there's no magic property which says like this one is better than the other. A lot of it is just like flows and and those are set on the margin of like who is the biggest structural seller or buyer. And like, you're just going through, you know, like probably four years of, of supply and lock. And, and most of it is concentrated at, I would guess, you know, of all the chains and like all the supply schedules that I've seen at like the kind of like front end of the bear market. But you just have this, like, especially because it's at a higher dollar value because it's all, you know, marked and trading higher. But like, you just kind of have this like relentless pressure on a lot of these assets. But you know, I think what is the good news, like for the tokens that have a lot of cash flow that um, also have a lot of token emissions or supply unlocking from VCs, like it's going to be at its weakest point. I'm invested in a, a, a venture fund that has invested in both Mistin Labs and Aptos. <clears throat> and, um, you know, they, they invested at, uh, you know, an earlier valuation um, and they bought equity. And the way that they mark their books, and this is sort of like one of the traditional, like a like a, a traditional perspective, Silicon, let's quote unquote, Silicon Valley venture capitalist. The way that they view this investment and the way that they're marketing it on their books is that they own equity in the company, which has gone up since there's there, there was a subsequent uh, uh, raise. It's gone up 1.8x from the original raise that they've had. They also own millions of Aptos tokens, which they literally do not even count in their portfolio valuation. The value of the equity has gone up 1.8X and is legitimately 5% the size of the value of the tokens that they hold at current market cap valuation with Aptos tokens. But like that perspective, I think pervades how, you know, traditional venture capitalists think about these assets. And so what do you think is gonna happen the second that they have this asset that is liquid that they can actually recoup value on in their illiquid venture portfolio, they're gonna sell it. And, and I think this is where like the traditional Silicon Valley VC perspective is almost like a, a red stain on any cap table in my mind. I tend to agree with that. So they almost treat it like an option. It's basically a free option, call option. On top <laughs> the, of the, the, the entire Aptos token 
has returned the value of it right now has returned the entire fund yet they don't even account it in their in their tvpi <laughs> that's pretty wonky <laughs> that's 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 pretty wild i i agree with you i um yeah i don't want to you know, there are obviously good and bad actors in every set of people. Um, you know, I'm sure there there are. You know, I definitely can think of some good, more traditional VCs off the top of my head. But definitely there are a lot of ones that aren't as, I don't know, um, aligned. And I don't know, as a founder, you know, if I was faced with the prospect of taking capital, it would be... I've always, I've always been like, why? Who cares about a blue chip at the end of the day? That's such a vanity metric. I just don't... I think the much more important thing is like, do you have people that you, you agree with? Are you aligned with them? Like, you trust these people? Well, I don't know. That's there, always there, there's a, a bit more nuance to this, which is like there is a structural difference where like technically venture capital funds cannot hold tokens. Uh, and so you, you, yeah. you there is like a, a, a reason why this has been the case. And, and so, you know, you saw Andreessen be the first one to do this, register as an investment advisor with the SEC. You know, framework is an RAA with the SEC. All the funds in crypto are because you know it, it does take a structural difference. So th there is an element of that to it as well. To to your point, uh, yeah, Mike, 100%. venture is a relationship business. Like uh, we've talked about this a little bit, but like I don't think it scales to you know you know billions of dollars you know every like year or two, especially when you're in a small subsector like crypto. Mm -hmm. And it's all about just, you know, being aligned with the people that are investing in you, like having them be someone who's not just capital. And that very has little, there's very little to do with like the reputation of the firm. It's it's just like, who are you working with? Who is the partner? Like, do you get Michael and Vance or do you get like, you know, somebody else? And I think that's the real difference maker. I, um, I remember having a conversation with Jason. Do you guys remember a little while ago when... Sue, before he was crypto's number one villain, he was going back yep. and forth with Kane uh, online, no, um, and he kind of dunked on Kane. And I actually remember—I can't even really remember what it was anymore—but I remember having like a little bit of sympathy for his argument. But I remember talking to Jason, be like, "I would never take money from that guy now, like never in a million years, because you just don't." That just you're, you said so that told me he viewed himself more as a trader than as a VC. Um, because I don't know, maybe other founders who are listening to this have had different experiences. Most of like the hard times about Blockworks have been like emotional times, but like this person wants to leave or they like want more money and like I don't know what to do. And just you just want someone that you can call, man. Sometimes you just need to vent. Ninety percent of the like else. It's just that. <laughs> yeah, I bet you guys feel like kind of therapists some of the time. Like yes. it is, you just gotta listen and provide a helping hand. Worker, all gonna be okay. Therapist. But that's valuable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've also, you know, I, I'd like to say like, you know, Vance and I did a, a startup prior to this and like, you know, one of the lines that we didn't come up with, but kind of resonates is like our friendship was formed in the crucible of a dysfunctional startup. And, you know, like that, that is kind of true in a lot of ways. And, and you, without having that experience, and I'm sure, I'm sure you and Yano feel the same way, like without having that, like you, you can't really advise, like you can't be like, Oh, I remember when, or like, I've seen this before. And you know, it's just not authentic. And I, th I think to to the point about Sue, like every single market cycle we've been through, and you know, this is the third one so far, every single time there's a grifter class of people masquerading as venture firms that should not be doing so. You know, in way back in the ICO days, it was, you know, 2017, 2018, it was the, the liquid funds who were literally getting tokens and selling on market the second that they were liquid. You know, this time maybe it's Kyle and Sue who are originally FX traders that started venture funds for, on the side for fun. 
Um, you know, who, who will it be again, you know, the next time we don't know, but like once again, you, you have to find partners that you can trust and work with. And, and that, that I think, you know, is a resounding truth across market cycles. hundred percent that all the best firms, at least on the investing side have two people, you know, like, uh, obviously Michael and myself, but like Fred and Matt, Chris and Joel, Kyle and Tushar. Um, I'm trying to think of the other uh, examples. I mean, ben and like Mark. Most, uh, Chris, Chris like and Joel. Ben and Mark. Yeah, the placeholder. Yep. Like it's, it's, it's uh, valuable to have a partner. hundred percent. I actually sometimes look at um, the like sole single founders and I'm always like, how do you do it, man? Like, how do you do it? Because there've been so many days where it's like, I feel like everything is going wrong and nothing is right. And, Jason and I will just call each other and be like, dude, it was a week. And he'll be like, it was a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, the, the, single, the single founder energy is different. 100%. Like, you know, it's just like one guy. You know, does he have it? It's a pretty, it's a pretty, I, it's I would way say that we have back single founders, but the first like post investment conversation is like, okay, who are you hiring as your number two? Who's going to be that person? Yeah. Why aren't you talking with recruiters right yeah. now? When is this person coming in? When can I interview them? Like, that's that's step one. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think uh, you have to be very cognizant of like what your strengths and weaknesses yep. are. Um, like we actually, there's there's a woman, uh, our COO Julie Miroff, who is like, I would say she's she was a super critical hire. Is one of the best ones we've ever made. She's just like Jason and I. You can probably tell. Like I think, you know, we're not exactly like this you know julie's like a hard charging bulldog operator who's like you just want to have on your team so i gotta i gotta give jules a shout out here we're talking about Um, she's a legend yeah she's a legend um all right guys i want to get your your take i know we're running low on time we're we're talking about villains so (laughs) so uh this is a story from last week uh but we didn't get to cover it because we didn't do the show so sbf basically posted his overview of what he would like to see from a regulatory standpoint, and there were there were a whole bunch of there were a whole bunch of different um, you know angles that he sort of covered. Uh, a lot of it was basically how uh, the, the the most important part that I want to get your guys' take on is how DeFi would sort of be regulated. So I think there was a there was a clause that he got a lot of pushback on, which was you know he kind of maintained the idea that the the DeFi protocols right the back end uh, would be uncensored right and basically largely unregulated but that the front ends would be regulated as broker dealers right so the distinction there being between like uniswap the the back end um and then versus like the the front end so i think the the pushback that he got was it creates an enormous amount of regulatory burden right on anyone that would just want to connect uh, to one of these things and it's also this is just this is software right there are very different uh, i think in a lot of in a lot of senses it doesn't make sense to regulate these things as broker dealers and the criticism was it's kind of self-dealing right it's i mean basically it makes it it lessens his competition as DeFi and and probably makes it so that we're all trading on centralized exchanges you know in three to five years time how did you guys i, I could, i'll present the steelman for like the other side of that but like how do you guys interpret uh spf's outline so i i think like one of the main things about the bill that's a little bit loss and in the noise is that, you know, if you look at something like DeFi, yes, it's about the front ends, it's about the back ends, but it's also about preserving the economic opportunity for consumers and making sure that they are able to 
transacting these digital goods and services in a way that's very efficient. So buried in the DCCPA was this language that we originally found, I don't think really, but anybody else was paying attention to this, that says, if you want to go yield farm or liquidity provide, you're dealing in a digital commodity. We've expanded the definition of a commodity pool operator to include digital commodities. And so therefore, you might need to go register with the CFTC, even if you're some hobbyist at home that wants to stake or swap or liquidity provide or do any of the things that really kind of represent the actual functionality of crypto and you know protecting the developers and then keeping the economic opportunity open for the consumers is basically the platform that we have and with legislation you're not going to get like a thousand shots we're like we're not going to get like you know a year or two to basically come up with our best ideas you know have a powwow make everybody feel good and then um you know put them all in there this is kind of how the process runs where, you know, it might get put into an omnibus bill. It's kind of like the, the Congress and Senate might change over at the end of the year. You know, there's going to be kind of this rush towards these deadlines. And that's kind of the scenario that we're going to find ourselves in, regardless of, of which legislation eventually passes. Like, are we definitely pro regulation? Absolutely. We want like regulation that makes sense. Like DCCPA needs changes. It's possible it gets there. It's also possible it just like doesn't pass. Um, and so, you know, I'm looking for what the language is in the bill. I'm not really paying attention too much about like the Kabuki theater of like, oh, we didn't know this language might do that. Like at this level, there basically just are no mistakes. And so I don't really believe that. Um, and yeah, so if it comes back and it's positive, we're going to be in favor. But if it comes back and it's negative, we're just not. Um, and I think there is a lot of room in, in a grassroots movement that, you know, right, like legislation like this should make sense eventually. Um, but yeah, totally that's kind of how we feel about it. Like the way I liken this is kind of like we were talking about with Apple. You know, it, it, it's not going to be perfect, and Apple's going to want their cut. Um, and they, uh, what they put out maybe isn't what Apple put out in the guidelines this week isn't perfect. It doesn't align directionally with you know what a lot of people wanted, but it at least gives us a playbook that we can start operating under now, and we could define products and categories that will be able to abide by that. The other thing I'll say is, um, with any of this regulation, and you know, yes, everybody loves to hate on the SEC. Maybe CFTC is you know now under the guise of you know hate, being hated on by crypto Twitter. The intention mm -hmm. of this, uh, and the intention of all of these rules, is to create fair and equitable, even markets. Um, and you know, we've seen yeah. you know fraud. We've seen things get out of out of hand. Um, you know, the, the whole three arrows capital situation is something that like literally the SEC and, and other regulatory bodies are there to protect against and defining fair and even rules, I think is actually one of the most bullish things that could happen for this industry. But to Vance's point, if it's not going to be that, and it's draconian in nature, and it's basically just like screw DeFi, it's not gonna be something that's workable. And, and like, how do you get a protocol to to write to register like how do you get a protocol to become a broker dealer or like have a have a you know kyc into the protocol itself like it just can't happen so like there needs to be a meeting of, of in the middle somewhere i think i would agree with that i think um you know at the end of the day i don't think the u.s wants to because the the opponents of DeFi and crypto writ large have always kind of said something to the effect of, well, you know, this isn't truly anonymous because the government can send people to your house and throw you in jail. And it's like, that's true. But I also don't really believe that the government wants to do that. They don't want to be taking draconian action against something that is popular. So I, I think that is the, and I credit to Melton Demuros, who's been talking about this for as long as I've been in crypto. Crypto has to win hearts and minds. 
I think, uh, and that's still a challenge that I think we're working on. But I think those uh, <laughs> we're working I mean, on it, baby. We did I ourselves know. a disservice this year. I agree with you. Yeah, we we next year needs to I be agree. better. I, the the only reason why we tweet about this stuff and why we actually like are, you know get louder about our perspectives on DCCPA is because like the wrong regulation to Michael's point can be catastrophic mm -hmm. and it's going to kind of be run in this like hurry up offense style where you need to like mobilize and talk about the issues and hash out, you know, how everyone feels in almost real time. And we're very lucky that Twitter allows us to do that. Um, but you know, the message needs to be very clear that like basically everything is DeFi, you know, every use case is financialized to some extent or another. And so if you want to ban that, you're kind of banning everything. And, and people might say like, oh, like, what's the, wh like, why, why not have it be, you know, a, the token be a security or a commodity? It's like, you want to go hold your tokens in your Charles Schwab account, like, and use them in Fidelity's, like, wallet? Like, that doesn't sound like the future and that we want. That, to, to that point, I, I completely agree. The, the other thing I'll say, too, is, like, there are a lot of entrepreneurs that we work with who, who still have the perspective of, like, I want to get the U.S. market. But getting the market in the U.S., which is arguably one of the biggest that you could go after, is going to require some capitulation on regulatory fronts. Mostly it comes down to KYC and, and probably, you know, standard open standards of, you know, how you're managing assets. Uh, but, you know, if, if you can find if we can find a way for a decentralized protocol or even a UI to do KYC that's decentralized in nature, I'm all ears because that would be a huge boon for the industry. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, I like, I'm obviously on the side of crypto. I do, I suppose if I was sitting at one of these agencies, right, uh, what, what we're trying to say, right, is exactly what you were saying, Vance, like the economic opportunity and freedom is like enormous boon to consumers. And I get some people are super cynical about regulators in the government. I'm not as cynical as other people. I genuinely think they're good people trying to do their job, but I can see how they would hear like, Hey, we just wanted to be able to track, you know, transact with anyone in total privacy with no accountability and i'm unwilling to hear anything and it's kind of like we you we, okay a middle ground needs to be found we have to come to the table with at least something right like okay if you don't like this proposal like tell me how it should be fixed and and uh, you know if i was working at the blockchain association or coin center i'd be saying yeah we do do that so this is my you know bi-weekly appreciation post for those guys because they're literally advocating for our entire industry so yeah props to those guys and gals you're great um we're donors yeah, we love them um guys any memes of the week i guess to to close us off i mean there's I one mean, that's one like the obvious one meme. <laughs> elon which one elon dude he went he goes into twitter with a sink <laughs> someone had the best response yeah which was uh you know, just imagine the assistant that had to go off and buy a sink for elon <laughs> his, his laugh in that video is like oh man he's he's in for some he trouble yeah he and he's like an he looks like he's like wreck shit. Like I thought he was gonna drop that sink off the roof or something. I, I didn't fully get why he throws them out with the kitchen sink. Yeah, plate. yeah, because he's oh, gonna wow. fire seventy five percent. So this is a man who's about to chop seventy five percent of the headcount and just giggling like a schoolboy. I mean, boy, I, I, like I, I, I fully company. expected him to just show up with a paintball gun, Ari Gold style. I think we just watched the real world version of that by the way like i think we just watched i'm so happy he 
He's he's the goat. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he is. I yeah. Do you think he solves the bot problem? I think that's his first week. Yeah. No. <laughs> really? Uh, two very different responses there. I mean, that, that's like, or... okay, think about the narrative win that that would be. And, like, he's getting so much negative press around this. Even his investors are trying to back out because he's at the $44 billion mark. Like, if he can solve that problem, that's, like, the that's the highest leverage thing with probably, like, not the most difficult uh, um, yeah, implementation of. But think about it. Like, the reason why they haven't been able to do this, it's not because of a technical issue. It's because they've been publicly traded. And so the second that your active user base goes down 40% or 50%, whatever the percentage is, the second that happens quarter over quarter, you know, you're screwed. It's probably you know, 20% looks like child's play at that point, you know, but now that it's private, who gives a shit? Hmm. Do you, do you think you guys ever watch succession? Yes. Do you know when uh, Kendall like inherits the company in the first season, they like take him up to the roof and they're like, so there's a debt problem, <laughs> you know, it's basically like the whole company's like levered to the tits. Do you think that when, you know, the new Twitter CEO got in, they were like, so buddy, <laughs> like about those user numbers, or do you think it's like everyone knows that? Cause I was kind of just assuming it's at least 50% bots or something, but do you think everyone assumes that or will we all be shocked? There's definitely some skeleton. There, there's like user mismanagement skeletons in all of yeah. these big tech companies closets. Like, I don't think it's just a Twitter problem. I think it's probably like a OG, actually for sure Instagram as well problem. Um, but I think I would not, I would not be surprised to see Elon announce something about like his official number of bots that he's found and his plan to eradicate them. Like, I, I think that has to be one of the first things that he at least tries to do, taking control of the company. I'm actually pretty bullish on him able being able to turn this around. Um, if like if his whole vision comes true, Tesla, SpaceX, Starlink, X.com, the app, like this is going to be pretty powerful. So I definitely would not fade him. He's also the world's richest man and just doesn't give basically a fuck about what anybody thinks. Like he that's that's a, a very billion dollar nominate because he said he wanted to on Twitter and couldn't back out. <laughs> It literally just slipped out, and then he owed $44 like, billion. Dollars. Oops. <laughs> yeah. And he, and he settled. I, I, I would assume he settled so that nobody else gets to read whatever else was in his phone or, or oh, yeah. stuff like that. Like, it, it felt like he just made a mistake. <laughs> just like, I don't have to do it. Yeah. So, you know the yeah. funny part about So, that's like when you go out to a dinner, and it's like three times as much as you thought. And you're like, oh, that sucks. That's basically what he did, but with $44 billion. And he could absorb it. He's like, oh, that hurts, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> Just 44 <laughs> of the 250. Yeah. Um, yeah, the guy's a, he's a bold guy. I, I agree with you. I mean, he's a good operator, obviously. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. What do you, uh, I, I think this will be – so I'm sure you guys know this, but maybe not everybody does. You know, he bought Tesla. He didn't start it. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. he, he right. has done this before. Obviously, he hasn't done this at this scale. But this is not like a new thing for him. And, and it, you know, I, I think he'll be able to do well. I, I do think this will be a, a new type of challenge because, you know, massively publicly traded company with a bunch of skeletons as we're, as we're describing. But he's going to get a couple of early narrative wins and basically just have, you know, the, the buy-in at that point to, to kind of do what he wants. I think the biggest, you know, people love to indict Elon Musk, but the biggest, you know, check in the pro category for him is when he made all that money from X.com or whatever it was. What did he choose to do? He could he could easily roll that into another internet startup, right? Everyone would have backed him. He could have easily made a bunch of money doing that. 
what did he do? He started an electric car company and a space well, company. He bought, <laughs> like, that's so, not. So here, here is, so he made something like $130 million, let's call it. Her number's probably around there. But right. uh, put $100 million into Create SpaceX, which started off by buying a $20 million ICBM rocket from Russia, and then, which ultimately didn't work or do anything. And then he put something like 20 eight or 29 million into to buy Tesla. He started off by investing and then he ultimately bought the founders out and then put $1 million into something else and then literally had to borrow money for rent. Like you go from $130 million to like sleeping on couches. Like that, that's the type of person in his mindset that he you know, operates under. It's pretty extraordinary. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, all right, fellas, I think that's all the time we have, so I'll wrap it. But uh, see you same time next week. See you then.